0: Would you take your copy of the Scriptures and open to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 30 to 33. Let me read that passage for us and then lead us in prayer. Romans 15, 30 to 33, and then prayer. You will remember that the Apostle has been... Speaking about his desire to take the gospel to Spain and go on a missionary venture there, taking the gospel and planting churches where no one has been previously. And he is appealing to Rome to be the center of his base of ministry from which he can venture out and go to Spain, as well as to provide financially for that venture. He concludes that appeal with these words starting in verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judah, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy, by the will of God, and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Father, we thank you for the revelation of yourself to us. For indeed you are holy. And we have been made those who like to worship And delight in worship of you. Because through the righteousness of Christ we have had his righteous holiness imputed to us. So that while we are not yet what we will be when we are in glory with you. Yet even now you consider us to be holy. And you are progressively making us to be holy and righteous, growing us in Christ-likeness. This is the essence of the life of Christ that is in us that we have also sung about. That life of Christ is our joy. We have nothing without that life of Christ in us. He is everything to us. His message is everything to us. And the privilege of taking that message elsewhere, sometimes just across the street from where we live, or across the aisle from where we work, and sometimes across the ocean to another land. But that's our joy it's our privilege. At times it's costly, but it's worth it if even one soul is saved. And yet, Father, as we think about that task, we think, how will we ever accomplish it? How will it come to be? And so might we know something of the power to accomplish the missions, ventures that you have already granted to us and that you will grant to us in the future. Would you guide us this morning in understanding that power and being reliant on that power and appropriating that power so that your gospel will go to the nations. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen earlier this year actually like earlier over the past several years Regine has pointed out to me the decrepit state of our fence in our backyard and she had pointed out that in certain places it was leaning like it made the Tower of Pisa look straight and um, in certain places it was starting to rot that we have one place in our yard where the water just runs through a particular area of the yard and past the fence and through the fence and it was making rotten holes in the fence to speed its progress through on particularly heavy rainy days. And so she advocated that we might consider replacing the fence and and I said sure it sounds like a good time. Lumber prices are high and concrete is high. This is a good time. This is the way we roll. And so we counted fence panels. In certain places, the panels were an unusual size, so we had to replace the stringers and then put up each picket individually by hand. So we counted the panels, we counted the pickets. Regine went to the lumberyard and said, um, this is what I need. And the man there told her, uh, we are short on lumber. We have one pallet of pickets. She said, I'll take it. And... um, So we got home with a pallet of pickets and figured we needed some more pickets. So a little bit later, we went down to Lumberyard and he said, I now have half a pallet of pickets. And we said, we'll take it. Because he said, who knows when I'll get pickets back in stock. Of course, we were buying high, as we typically do. Halfway through the project, Regine said, you know, I'm just not sure that we have enough pickets to finish this project. And because I have done enough house projects over the years to know the reality of twice as much time and twice as much money, I figured she has to be right, we have to be short. So we went down and we bought more pickets. We were nearing completion of the project, and one Saturday morning we walked around the backyard and we counted the number of pickets that we would need to finish the project and we counted the number of pickets that we had laying around the backyard, and I took a certain percentage and kept a certain amount in reserve for when others would rot, and you know we just have it in hand and have it ready to go uh, fix the fence. And we loaded up the few remaining pickets and took them back to Lowe's. 183 pickets extra. <laughs> it was it was a really nice gift. To my Lowe's bill that month. As I said, that's how we do projects. Sound familiar to any of you? As I think about missions, I think about planning. And what do we need to do missions? And I hope we plan our missionary ventures a little bit better than I plan my backyard projects. What do we need when we think about missions? We need a policy policy. What is missions going to look like? What's our commitment to missionaries? What do we expect of missionaries? How will we help missionaries? Etc. How will we train missionaries? We need, we need people to go. We need people to partner with in the missionary venture. We need a clear gospel to proclaim. We need training. We need equipping. We need cash in order to send people. Anything else? What else do we need? We need prayer. Without prayer, missions will never succeed. And it strikes me as I think about missions and I think about how Paul has really laid out a, an ample philosophy of missions in this passage But the one thing he comes to at the end of the passage is one of the things that we are prone to forget, and that is prayer. Prayer is the power to accomplish missions. For a number of Sundays now, we've been thinking about missionary ventures. We've been thinking about how Paul will get to Spain and what he will preach when he gets to Spain. That's verses 17 to 21. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verses 22 to verse 29, we've been talking about the vision for missions and what does missions look like and how do we think about missions when we go over there. That's the philosophy of missions. In verses 30 to 33, this passage, Paul talks about the power, and the power is prayer. We can summarize it this way. Successful missions ventures are empowered by faithful praying. Successful missions ventures are empowered... By faithful praying. By that statement, I don't mean, and the Apostle Paul doesn't mean, that praying in itself changes anything. It's not, it's not the force of our prayers that accomplishes something. It's not, it's not as if just wishing and wanting makes it so. But it does mean that if missions will succeed, that we will be faithfully dependent on God in prayer to accomplish His purposes. It means that if, if missions will go forward, and if missions will help, it will happen, and if, if people will be transformed by the gospel in other lands, it will be through God working through our prayers. In this passage, Paul will model for us five aspects of faithful praying for missions. Five aspects of faithful praying for missions. The first he gives us at the beginning of verse 30. And it is the need for missions praying. The need for missions praying. Now I don't know about you, but sometimes I open up my Bible and start reading in the morning and maybe enough caffeine hasn't hit the bloodstream yet. And I just kind of start going and I just get a little bit downstream. And I'm just not sure exactly about where I'm going and what's happening. And, And part of that is because sometimes I miss the little words. Sometimes the little words are the ones that grant us a significant insight into the power of a particular passage. For instance, in Romans chapter 5, it says Christ died for the ungodly. He died for our sins. That's verses 8 and 10. They go, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. He died for the ungodly. And by that, He doesn't just mean, well, He died for him. He means He died in the place of And he died for our sins. He died as our substitute. And the whole doctrine of substitutionary atonement is packed into that little word, for. Similarly, in this passage, when Paul says in verse 30, now, we get a hint As to the power of what he's talking about and the importance of what he is talking about in this passage. When he says now, we are to understand that he's making a conclusion. He's tying everything together that he has already said about missions. And he's making a final appeal. But he's not only making a final appeal, but that word now is also leading us to understand that he's going to introduce another key component to what he's saying about missions in other words, if missions is going to happen, it's going to happen because of this component and we understand from the rest of this verse that it's about prayer. So don't just dismiss missions and say, well, it's just, it's a secondary thing. It's not really that important. No, it's, it's foundational. It's critical. It's essential. Prayer is to accomplishing missions. And he stresses that importance of what he is about to say by the verb he uses in verse 30, Now I urge you, brothers. That word urge has a, a wide range of meaning in the New Testament. It can mean everything from as simple to encourage, put an arm around a buddy and hold him up, to exhort, to compel, to call to action in a, in a military sense. And that's what the Apostle Paul, I think, has in mind here. Guys, it's time to, it's time to take action. It's, it's time to engage. It's, it's time to, to move forward. And he's compelling the readers in Rome, even as a military general might, might command and compel those who are underneath his authority to a particular call of action. And that call of action is prayer. It's needful. It's necessary. It's urgent. It's compelling. And we should notice that this isn't just Paul's idea. This isn't just something that Paul conjured up and Paul was thinking about. Notice on what basis he makes that compelling call. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, the basis for his call to prayer is not well, this is my idea. I think this would be a good idea. No, the, the basis for the call to prayer is on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice he calls him not just Jesus Christ, but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the master. He is the authority. He is the sovereign. He is the one under whom we are servants and slaves. It is that one who is our master, who has called us. It's his idea. He is also our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is our Jesus Christ. He is the one who belongs to us as the one who has come as Savior for us. The one, Jesus Christ, the God-man who took on flesh So that He could die in our place and be resurrected in our place and grant to us eternal life. It's that one who is our Savior who has compelled us to pray. It is that one who is not just our Savior, but that one who has called us to go with the gospel to the nations in the Great Commission. It is that one who is urging us and calling us to pray. So he makes the admonition on the basis of our Lord Jesus Christ, but not just on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what he says in verse 30, by the love of the spirit, by means of the love of the spirit. That is because of the love of the spirit that is being worked in your hearts. So as you are connected to the Holy Spirit in salvation and the Holy Spirit is in you and He is working love through you, it is is on that basis that I urge you to pray. In other words, you love one another and you have a love for the nations and love for the, the people of the nations to come to know Jesus Christ. It's on that basis of love that you are compelled and urged to pray. Why pray? When we don't, when we pray, we're not changing God's mind, are we? It's not as if God's kind of up in heaven saying, well, I'm a little indecisive here about what I should do. Oh, well, all these, all these people in Granbury are praying for this mission venture. Well, I'll go do that. God's not confused. He has a plan. He's had that plan from eternal ages past. He's not confused. He's not wishy-washy. He's resolute. We are not changing God's mind. But when we pray, we are aligning our hearts with the heart of God. And what's the heart of God for the nations? The heart of God for the nations is that they be saved. That the nations come into fellowship with Him. Did you, did you hear that? As Keith was reading the psalm this morning, Psalm 96, Sing to the Lord a new song. That's a, a, a hymn of worship for the Israelites. But then notice the second line. Sing to the Lord all the earth. The missionary venture goes to the world and the nations beginning with God. He's the first missionary. Tell of His glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. And when we pray for the people, we are beginning to align our hearts with God's heart. We get God's passion that the people of the world would come to know Him. And secondly, when we pray, we not only align our hearts with God's heart, but we affirm our dependence on Him. We, we're saying when we pray, we can't do this, God. We need You. It's very much like the prayer of faith that, that we that we pray for salvation. I can't. You must. And as we think about the gospel venture, we're saying, God, we can't take this gospel. We don't know. We aren't effective. If this is going to happen in the nations, you must do it. So missions praying is vital because it builds a missionary mindset in our hearts and it makes us rely on God for the results and then wait patiently for Him to act. Last week I mentioned the story of William Carey. William Carey frequently noted his dependence on prayer. Listen to what he said in his journal. If there is anything if, excuse me, if there is anything that engages in my my heart in prayer to God, it is that the heathen may be converted. If if I pray about anything, it's praying for the conversion of those who are against God. He writes this in his book, An Inquiry. The most glorious works of grace that have ever taken place have been in answer to prayer. Many can do nothing but pray. And prayer is perhaps the only thing in which Christians of all denominations can cordially and unreservedly unite. Praying is not secondary. Praying is necessary. As we think about missions now, let's pray. Let's engage in prayer. When William Carey was asked in January of 1793 by that group of pastors that was commissioned to thinking about taking the gospel to the nations, if he would go along with John Thomas to India, he assented that he would go with him and would later that summer. And then he responded to those pastors in affirming his willingness to go. He said this, I will go down. But who will hold the ropes? And by holding the ropes, he was asking the question, who will help me? Who will sustain me? Who will go along with me in providing? Part of our mission's commitment is the recognition that not everyone will go on mission ventures. In fact, the reality is most of us will stay and not go overseas. But that does not mean that we are not involved. We are all involved in the missionary venture. To use Carry 's terminology, we are involved either by going or by holding the ropes. There is no other option. We either go or we stay and hold. And the first step in holding the ropes is praying for the effectiveness of those who go. Praying is needful for missions. Second principle, the nature of missions praying. Notice the end of verse 30. I urge you brothers to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me the first thing I want you to notice here is that Paul assumes that they're praying. So he doesn't say pray. The verb that he says is strive together. And you strive together in the praying. So he's assuming you are praying, and you're praying to God, and you're praying for me on my behalf. But he says there's a particular kind of praying that you need to do, and it's the kind of praying that That strives together with me. What does it mean to strive together? The word has the idea of joining with someone in a fight. It has the idea of a a strenuous effort. And so when we read this and Paul says, Strive together with me in your prayers, we might think that Paul is advocating, you know, do the hard work of praying. And, And we can acknowledge, can't we, that praying is hard work? Praying doesn't come intuitively. Praying for most of us doesn't come easily. We have to think about it. We have to plan for it. We have to be intentional with it. We have to develop a plan to stay on the knees day by day, moment by moment. It's hard work. And if we're not convinced of that, just go ask Peter, James, and John, and they'll tell you, right? Could you not even stay awake for one hour and pray with me? It's possible that that's what Paul means. But I think actually Paul is talking about something else. I think Paul is talking about the solidarity that they have with him. Paul's talking about, pray with me and join in my battle with me. So I'm in a battle as I'm going to take the gospel to the nations. I'm in a battle as I take the gospel to Spain. And think about planting a church there in an unreached place with, with heathen people People who are pagans. People who are rejectors of God, and and there are hard things that are awaiting me there. And would you strive together? Would you embattle that venture with me? Engage with me. Be allies in my fight with me. Pray, pray for me, as if you were praying for yourself, if you were in that battle yourself. Would it be something as simple as? God bless Paul today. Or would you be on your knees for even hours beseeching God to act on Paul's behalf? That's what Paul's talking about. Would you be vigorous, battle weary in the way you pray? The nature of missions praying is that when we pray for missions, we are joined to... That missionary. I've told our missionaries for years. Hey guys we're, we're with you. We're partners with you. I, want you. I want you to understand. We think of you as, as us with you on the field. I know we're not there. But that's the way we feel about you. We're, we're conjoined to you. We're one. And gratefully. I've heard repeatedly from our missionaries. Man we, we feel that from you. We're grateful for that. That's what Paul's talking about here. We're fighting alongside the missionaries in praying. We're persistently engaged in praying. You know, most of us can't go overseas. But all of us can go overseas in prayer and be vigorous in our praying. Third aspect of faithful praying that Paul notes here verse 31 is the content of missions praying for what should we pray when we think about missions for what should we pray and I don't don't think this is an exclusive list that's a short list actually I I don't think this is everything we should pray about when we think about missions but this is a good starting spot and the first thing Paul is going to talk about is protection pray for me that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea When he asks for protection from unbelievers, he uses the word rescue. That word rescue, he's used previously in this letter to speak about God's deliverance of sinners. He's rescuing people out of hell and rescuing them to himself. So in asking for rescue, Paul's affirming his dependence on God, his need to be delivered. His inability to deliver himself just as a man is un- unable to deliver himself from sin. Now why, why would Paul need deliverance? I mean, he's a Jew and he's headed back to Judea. I mean, why would he need deliverance there? I mean, isn't he in more trouble being in a Gentile place as a Jew? Well, he is headed for Jerusalem and he is well aware that there are people in Jerusalem and in Judea who are waiting for Him and who are opposed to Him. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 22, He says, And now behold, Acts 20, 22 and 23, Now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions wait for me wherever I go, I'm hearing from the Holy Spirit that when I get to Jerusalem, I can face bonds and afflictions. I'm facing trouble. I'm facing opposition. Chapter 21 of Acts, after looking up at the disciples, we stayed there seven days. Luke says, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Why? Because trouble's coming, Paul. Verse 13, Paul answered. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For am I not only ready to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus? So he's going, anticipating, desiring to get back to Rome and go on to Spain, but he's also anticipating when he goes there, he's facing persecution, he's facing suffering. That opposition has been since the very beginning of his ministry in Acts chapter 9. He has faced opposition all the way, even from Jews outside of Israel. Acts 20 verse 3 tells us that. Paul also understands the nature of the opposition he's going to face because of what he himself was before he was converted. Galatians chapter 1, he tells the Galatians verse 13, You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. And so what he is now facing as he goes back to Jerusalem is the very thing that he used to attempt to do to the church himself. So he knows he's in trouble. He expects it. So he asks, pray that I'll be rescued from that, that I'll be delivered from that. He also knows he needs it not just because he's being, being opposed, but notice how he identifies those people from those who are disobedient. Who are the disobedient? Disobedient. They're the unbelieving. They are they're those who have rejected Christ. In fact, in this epistle, starting in chapter 1 and then ending in Romans 16, we'll see this in two or three weeks, Paul consistently defines the obedient as those who have faith and those who have faith as those who have obedience. And so to take that analogy, if those who are in Christ are also obedient, then those who are disobedient, Paul sees as being outside of Christ. They're outside of Christ. They're rebellious to Christ. They want nothing to do with Christ. They want nothing to do with God. They're rebellious against God. And if Paul will stand for that gospel, then they'll be rebellious against him and persecute him him as well. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder that the gospel that we love will invariably face opposition. We shouldn't be surprised. And that is why we need to pray. Only God can change someone's heart. Only God can protect when there's opposition. Now, what Paul doesn't say there in verse 31, because he doesn't know it yet, but we do, We assume that when the Romans got this letter that they would have prayed. I mean, if you would have gotten this letter and Paul says pray, wouldn't you pray? It's reasonable. And God chose to say no. He had a different purpose. He had a different plan. And the opposition that Paul faced in Jerusalem led to nearly five years of imprisonment. Part of that time in Jerusalem, part of that time in Rome. And while he was eventually released from that imprisonment, he was later rearrested re- and then martyred for his faith. And so you say, well, God didn't answer that one. Except that it was Paul's imprisonment in Rome. That became, his, excuse me, it was his imprisonment in Jerusalem that became his boat ride to Rome. It was the means by which God said, Let me get you from Jerusalem to Rome this way. And I'm assuming he didn't have to pay for that ticket because he was under imprisonment. For Paul, and sometimes for us as well, it is suffering and God's no to our prayer requests that leads to the accomplishment of God's purposes for us. We do well to remember that and we do well to rest in that as we pray. So Paul prays, Paul asks rather that they pray for protection. The second thing he asks is that they pray for acceptance. That is, that his work would be acceptable to the church. Notice the end of verse 31. Pray that I might be rescued. And, middle of the verse, that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Now, now, what's his service for Jerusalem? Well, he's already told us earlier in this chapter, right? So verse 26, Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for Paul to take to the Jerusalem church to care for the poor. Paul's taking cash to Jerusalem to give to the church. Now, we know he's facing opposition outside the church. But why does Paul say, pray that they'll accept my service of bringing them cash? I mean, it's free money. It's what a friend of mine used to call mailbox money. You go out to the mailbox and there's a check waiting for you. How cool is that? And and why, why would they not accept that? Well, think about where he's going. He's going to Jerusalem. And he's taking cash from where? The Gentiles. And of all the churches in the first century that struggled with the issues that we talked about for a few weeks in Romans 14, about issues of liberty... It was the Jerusalem church. It was the Jerusalem church where they were tempted to say, well, we're glad you came to Christ, but now you've got to be circumcised. You've got to still fulfill some of the Old Testament law. And they were still having trouble with this idea of Jew and Gentile together in one body. And so when Paul is saying, pray for the acceptance of the ministry of my gift to them, he's really saying, pray that... Pray that they will accept it and and that in the acceptance that they will demonstrate Jew and Gentile are together in this venture. That we really are one body in Christ. He's really saying, would you pray for the unity of the body of Christ? And we don't have a full description of what happened. But we do have this from Luke. Acts 21, verse 17. And after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Now you read Acts 21 and you go, okay, no. There's a huge theological principle going on there. There's a mission prayer being answered there. Where a body has said, Yeah, Paul, we're together. We're in this together. And we know this is coming from the Gentiles. But we'll take it as acceptance from the brotherhood. Even when we're venturing to do good, we shouldn't assume that people, even in the church, will embrace it and accept it. And so part of our prayer should be, God, will you use this Not only to expand the body, but will you use this ministry to preserve the body and preserve the unity of the flock in that place and everywhere? That's the content of missions praying. What's the purpose of missions praying? He gives that to us in verse 32. So that, that's a purpose word. So he's telling us why he wants them to pray... So that I may come to you in joy. Why does Paul want the Roman church to pray for these things? So that I can come to you... And particularly so that when I come to you... I come to you in joy. That is, I want the internal attitude of joy... When I come to you... He's anticipating that God's going to say yes to the request... And that will give him joy as he goes to Rome. then secondly... He wants to come to Rome by the will of God. I want to come to you in joy and by the will of God. Now obviously, the will of God's not an internal attitude like joy is, but it, it, it is the means by which He gets there. So he's simply saying, I, "I want to get there according to God's will. I want God to accomplish whatever God's sovereign purposes have intended. And I want God's will to be that I get to Rome. And that's why I want you to pray, so that God will be moved to act, and His will of getting me to Rome is accomplished. So you've got to ask the question. Did Paul get to Rome with joy? We know that when he left Corinth, he's writing from Corinth, when he left Corinth to head towards Jerusalem. He was leaving joyfully. Verse 19 of chapter 16. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I am rejoicing over you. I've got joy. I'm thrilled as I'm getting ready to leave Corinth. From Corinth... He gets to Jerusalem and that's when the trouble starts. He's arrested. He's imprisoned in Jerusalem for two years. He's finally released in that. He's not really released, but he's released to leave Jerusalem, get on a ship under guard and go to Rome and be imprisoned in Rome. And oh, by the way, along the way, he gets shipwrecked and finally gets to Rome and he's in Rome for two years under imprisonment this is a serious delay in his timeline, is Paul joyful. He writes the book of Philippians from that Roman imprisonment near the end of the roughly five years when he's been imprisoned. And he says this in chapter one, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every remembrance of you. (laughs) Paul's been seriously derailed. And he's still joyful. In fact, the book of Philippians is perhaps his most intimate and most joyful book. And it's when he's imprisoned. Chapter 2, You can make my joy complete... By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul doesn't say, my joy will be complete when I get out of prison and I can go to Spain. My joy is complete to hear of your unity. doesn't matter what happens to me. Verse 17 of chapter 2. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. long as you're walking with Christ, if it takes my imprisonment to accomplish that, I'm joyful, I'm satisfied, I'm happy. Did Paul arrive in Rome with joy? He did indeed. Did Paul arrive in Rome according to the will of God? Yes. Now we've already noted the fact that he didn't get there in his timeline, in his way, but i think the apostle paul understands that this is exactly what god intended that nothing nothing undermined god's will nothing nothing had subverted god's plans that same letter philippians 1 listen to verse 12 i want you to know brethren that my circumstances what circumstances false arrest in jerusalem false pr- imprisonment in jerusalem Ungodly trials in Jerusalem, shipwreck on the way to Rome, and then imprisonment in Rome. Those circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known through the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else and that most of the brothers trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Did Paul think that he got to Rome in the will of God and by the will of God? Absolutely. He would say, it took my imprisonment to accomplish God's purposes that He had for me. This verse is a reminder that we pray and then God sovereignly acts in ways that are best for us and for His glory. It's been often said, man proposes, God disposes. We make plans, and God executes His will. And what He disposes is always best and always joyful. Will we accomplish everything we desire in missions? I don't know. But I do know that God's will will be accomplished in missions. One last, one last aspect of missions praying. It's in the last verse, verse 33. It is the comfort of, of missions praying. The comfort of missions praying or the hope of missions praying. I forgot to change the PowerPoint after I changed that word in my notes. Verses 30 to 32, Paul's asking for the prayer of the Roman church. Verse 33, he prays or benedicts for the Roman church. Now the peace of God be with you all. He's asking for them, he's praying for them, to know the peace of God. And when we talk about the peace of God, we're referring to something that God inherently is. He is peace. It is His nature. It is, it is His attribute. And he says, it is His desire that God's peace be with all of them. That, that is, that they would know the peace of God. That they would experience the peace, the comfort of God being with them. And not just not just a few of them. Notice he says, be with you all. Now that's not good Texan. In, Tex, in Texan, we would say it this way. Now may the God of peace be with all y'all. Not just all, not just y'all, like some of y'all. I mean like all y'all. Everybody in the group of y'all. And that's what Paul says. Every believer can know and experience this comfort, this peace. Isn't that interesting? Paul's essentially wrapping up his theological discussion. At the end of the end of this into verse into chapter sixteen, it's gonna be his final comments and his farewells, his greetings. This really constitutes the end of the book from a teaching standpoint. And isn't it interesting that he finishes here what he's going to teach, talking about the peace of God, because the beginning of the book talks about the wrath of God, God's condemnation against sin. And as Paul now comes full circle, He's saying you who were under the wrath of God because of your sin and righteously and justly so but now have been redeemed by Christ. I want you to know God's peace. And even as you think about joining with me in this missionary venture I want you to think about experiencing God's peace and be comforted by that. Now we should know that Paul here is talking to the believers in Rome. Brothers and sisters, the only way to know the peace of God is to be rightly related to Jesus Christ. And we go back to chapter 15, the earlier part of this book, earlier part of this chapter, verses 14 to 17, where he talks about the gospel message that he's going to preach, and that's Jesus Christ. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, might I submit to you that everything we've been talking about today, it's not part of your responsibility. And the comfort that he's, he's praying for here is not your comfort. You have no comfort. If you're not in Jesus Christ, that means you are still under his wrath. You are still under his condemnation. Your sin is still your idol. Your sin is still what controls you. And you have no hope in this world until you turn to Christ in faith and believing Romans chapter 5 or excuse me Romans chapter 3 verses 25 and 28 believing in Christ that he is the atonement the propitiation the covering for your sin and having faith in him alone to to remove sin from you That is your only hope of salvation. You can do nothing on your own to save yourself except appeal to Christ. And appealing to Christ, He will save you. And when He saves you, you can have peace and contentment and joy. When you go outside these walls and you go across the street, Cross 377 or go across the ocean. There is no peace in this world except in Christ. And there is abundant peace. That's our task. It's not just our task. Brothers and sisters, this is our power. If we're going to go with the gospel to the nations, we can plan, we can strategize, We can give. We can sacrifice. But until we've prayed, we have no power. The power for taking the gospel to the nations is in prayer. But then, having prayed, we have comfort and peace. That God is with us in that venture. I know of no other way to finish this message than to do what the Apostle Paul has called us to do, and that's to pray. Would you bow with me? Our Father, we bow before You this morning with one particular thing on our mind in prayer and one particular confession in prayer. The confession is simply that we have not prayed as we ought. We can always say we haven't prayed as we ought. Because in this body of fleshliness, this body that is prone to sin and this body that is just incapable of fulfilling everything you've called us to do with perfection, we won't pray perfectly. There's always opportunity to pray more. There's always opportunity to pray more effectively. There have been times even when we have been prompted to pray and we have not prayed. And so, Father, we confess our sin of prayerlessness to you and we we ask your forgiveness and we seek repentance and by which I mean we desire to pray more effectively from this point forward. We commit to praying and we commit to praying particularly for missions. And that's where we go next, and that is to pray giving thanks for those whom you've entrusted to us to pray for. We pray for Andrea Perkins, our Awana missionary serving in North Texas. And we pray for David and Carrie Gibson and For the long relationship of fellowship we've had with them, not only in their venture to go with the gospel and Bible translation to Papua New Guinea, but how many years, decades of service that we have shared with them here in this body. We pray for Dennis and Linda Beck with Campus Crusade and their ministry in Hungary and Ohio, helping to strengthen marriages overseas and minister to the unbelieving on campuses here in the United States. We pray for Dean and Joan Collar and Crossway International as they transition to Florida and as they continue to take the gospel overseas, seeking to be clear with the gospel that will save men's souls overseas. We pray for Doni and Norma Salazar, again, a, a couple we've been associated with for decades and for their ministry in Costa Rica, planting churches and developing churches. We pray for Jeff and Kristen Miller, our newest missionaries with TMAI in Germany. And thank you for their commitment to the church and their desire to build the church in Germany and to equip the church and particularly equip the church in the aspect of discipleship and training through, through um, discipleship counseling. We pray for Rodrigo and Sheila via church planting in Valparaiso, Chile. And church planting in a context and in a time that is very difficult because of restrictions that are in place because of COVID. And and thank you even that in the midst of those restrictions that they're having gospel opportunities and talking about the gospel and making context and having worship and, and gathering. And we're thankful for a church that's being built in that community that preaches the gospel with clarity. We pray for Shannon and Danielle Hurley with with uh, sufficiency of scripture ministries in Uganda and for how they are training people with the gospel, building churches and training pastors. And we pray for the two families that we have in the Middle East, one in the United Arab Emirates in Dubai and one in Lebanon. Thank you for the updates of ministry we've had from them this summer and for the progress of the gospel. We thank you for the family in Lebanon as they head back there tomorrow. And for their commitment, both of those families, to the progress of the gospel, again, to training men who will plant churches and equip others in other places to carry on the the ministry of the gospel. Thank you, Father, for opportunities. Perhaps that might lie for us in the United Kingdom, even as we heard from Keith this morning. And for associations that are being developed there. And for opportunity to train and equip and see the gospel advance. In a country that used to be a light for the gospel and now has blown out the light and is largely a darkened country. Father, as we as we pray for these who are already aligned with us, and as we think about aligning ourselves with other other missionaries for other ventures in other places, we we pray three things. We pray for their protection. We pray, our Father, for both their physical and spiritual protection, that you would guard their lives. Some of these are directly in harm's way. We don't speak their names in public so that it not get on the Internet, that someone not hear accidentally something that shouldn't be heard about them and that they end up being persecuted and even martyred for their faith. And so we entrust these to you. And we ask as well for their spiritual protection that you would guard their hearts and keep them walking faithfully with you so that they would be able to continue to to minister the gospel with integrity in the places where they are. Secondly, we pray for their unity and the fulfillment of their tasks. Would you give them unity with the people with whom they work? And would you give them unity with us? And would you give them boldness with the gospel and effectiveness with the gospel that ties the church of Jesus Christ together? And then, Father, we pray for Your peace to overwhelm them. Whatever their problems, might they know the comfort and peace that Paul asked for the Romans to know and that Christians have always known through the ages because of the connection that we have with Christ. Might they be comforted as they pour themselves out in ministering the gospel in foreign places. And then finally, our Father, we pray that you would make us to be persistent in praying and to fight with our missionaries for the progress of the gospel in their countries. Would you keep us faithful to the task of holding the ropes of prayer for these beloved co-laborers? We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.